Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about the precise amount of SNE allocation that is the right amount of <laughs> SNE allocation, but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, and that's the point of this show, and we're joined today by Megan Gunn, our aquatic education associate. Megan, it's been a minute. How are things all the way across the uh, the the quad there? Or the buildings. <laughs> the building. Things are good. Fantastic. It was a busy summer with all kinds of outreach and hands-on activities and Lake Michigan adventuring and yeah adventures. I'm glad to be back yeah let's talk about those adventures at some point we should but uh what kind of outreach gives let people know the cool stuff you're doing in terms of outreach over the summer because you do a lot of work with students in your role as an educator yes. right? so a lot of the fun things that I got to do this summer as they relate to Illinois Indian Sea Grant um I took a group of high school students um to Lake Michigan to that was very close to where some of the mills are and some spills have happened and they got to test the water quality and determine um, if how healthy it is compared to what it was when these spills were happening. Um, what we found out is yes, it is very healthy um, and those contaminants are not able to be found anymore, which is so what age students were these. These were high school students, high school students. Fantastic. That's super. Well, that's fun stuff. I love to hear about the stuff that you do. Well, let's talk about it more. But for now, we have to get an announcement and then on to our interview. The announcement is this, is that uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes, we're having a live recording, Evanston, Illinois. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. On uh, the <laughs> 19th of September, that's a Tuesday, at um, sometime in the early evening, late evening, early night. We don't have an ex I'll be honest, we don't have a time or a location yet. The reason I'm talking around this is because I haven't actually sent out the emails. Um, but we'll be there as part of the Great Lakes Sea Grant Network meeting. But the, the event is open to all. What I want you to do is uh, just go to follow us on social media, either Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant or Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Um, or just send us an email, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com for the details. We hope to have those worked out in the next week or so, maybe by the time this episode is released, actually. So you can also check in the show notes, because Lord knows we're getting <laughs> close. Um, but it's the summer it's of, uh, you know, maybe last minute. But we're super pumped to do these oh, live yes. shows. They're really fun. Uh, it'll be from some, as Ed Verhamey put it once, some noisy pub somewhere. Uh, and maybe outdoors because of certain uh, uh, global viral situations. But regardless, it's a lot of fun. We recommend you come. Uh, I recommend you come. Last time we had, when we were in Toronto, what did we have? About 50 people? Yeah, and it was a good crowd. And lots of midges. Lots, um, lots of midges. But I'm always midges. happy to see the midges. Just the bugs. <laughs> not um, yes, tons of midges there. Uh, but But there won't be midges this time. We're hoping. I, what I want is I want a plover to fly by, even though I think it. Oh, that would be awesome! But I just want a plover to uh, just fly by. Um, maybe a baby to wobble. But anyway, I'm wasting <laughs> our time and our guest time. We have an awesome guest this week, so let's just go ahead straight into the interview. And I'm not going to lie, our guest is a uh, 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 semi-retired scientist, which means there's only one transitional song that we could possibly play. So here it is. Research a feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Can I add I a weird for not quirk about, you about that? Yeah. 
a weird quirk that I was super excited about when I saw that you were still doing researchy things. I was like, yeah, we're going to get the researcher feature um, theme song. So excited. Yes. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. (laughs) Anyway, I apologize for not warning you about it in advance. Our guest today is uh, Dr. John Hardig. He's a visiting scholar at the Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research at the University of Windsor in Windsor, Canada. And he is also the author of, uh, let me get the title, the full title, Great Lakes Champions, Grassroots Efforts to Clean Up Polluted Watersheds. John, thank you so much for coming on. It's a real pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. Uh, this has been months months in the making because uh, we, we got in touch uh, back in January maybe, but it took me a while to read the book because there's been a lot going on and Same. I wanted to have actually read the book before talking with you. And I have, it's, it's really great. It's a, it's a series of, I think it's about 13 or 14 stories of individual Great Lakes champions and there's some through lines that you can kind of connect. But why don't we start with that? So the book is called Great Lakes Champions. What, what led you to want to focus on, on champions exactly? Well, I've uh, spent my career working on these most polluted areas of the Great Lakes, these Great Lakes areas of concern. And so um, in working on them, I, you know, I, I first started out in, in the state of Michigan, working with Michigan DNR on reporting on them. You know, what's the status of them? What do we need to do to clean up? And then I went over to the International Joint Commission to put the, you know, the remedial action plan program together in in the mid-1980s. And so I've worked on all of them. I've worked with all the different groups uh, in both Canada and the United States. And and I've obviously I've met lots of people in these really passionate, um, effective team builders and these people that really can bring together the coalition it takes to make some measurable progress in restoring these uh, Great Lakes areas of concern. So I decided one day, I said, well, you know, I've done this for so long. Why don't I pick out a, you know, like 13 or 12 or however many and <laughs> and and tell their story, you know, of not only what they did, but what they achieved and then kind of tease out some lessons learned as well. So that's the reason I did it. And the one, you know, I also wanted to make sure that the lessons learned from all this are not lost, but indeed passed on to the next generation, you know, and hopefully, you know, get taught in universities and elsewhere and become an inspiration for the next generation of Great Lakes champions. That was kind of one of my favorites. Like it was all, all of the things that have happened across the basin is in one place right now. Um, and you can that and then also seeing that, OK, it has taken a long time to get to where we are, but there are there are steps that we can can use and we can do to continue moving what they have started forward. So that was fantastic. And thank you for compiling this all for us. Yeah, wonderful. My pleasure. You know, I mean. You know, people say, why does it take so long? Well, these problems are, in some cases, a hundred to 200 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how can you, you know, solve them in a, in a, in a few short years or a decade or something like that. And so, so you've got to break it down into those incremental steps and you've got to be able to show progress and sustain momentum and keep people at the table and all those unique skills to, uh, to, to reach a vision that you want. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. 
And so you said that you sort of, um, I'm always curious. I've never written a book. Uh, I don't write nearly as much as you did or do, I think, but um, I try to avoid writing. But uh, <laughs> so, so you said these are people that you met. Did you, was it, did you have to like call down? For, how'd you select these? Uh, I think it was 12, but a couple, it was probably 13 people, I think, right? Because there was at least one couple in there. How yep. did you settle on those stories as opposed to others? Were you looking for the individual stories or how well they connected to some greater themes about the Great Lakes or what? Uh, you know, you know, this theme that that's throughout is, is, working together, you know, um, you know, what is the desired future state? You know, what's the vision you have that can be carried in the hearts and minds of all people? How do you co-produce knowledge, co-innovate solutions and make measurable progress? You know, um, so I looked at both the individuals, but then I looked at the measurable progress in the areas of concern and, and, and obviously I wanted some Canadian stories and I want some U.S. stories. And so I picked these out and I decided to, to, to write their stories. And so I interviewed them. I, I came up with a, a core set of questions that I would ask each of them. But then, of course, I would allow them to, to expand and, 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 and expand out a little more in some of their answers. And um, that was the basis. And then, of course, having worked on all, all of these, you know, I've got, I was familiar with the literature and I could pull it together and, and, and put this together like this. It seems like all of this is a, one of the, one of the key phrases that I picked up several times was the Great Lakes Tapestry. Um, and you finding these people across the basin and their stories. Can you, I guess, could you talk a little bit more about what the Great Lakes Tapestry is for those, our listeners that haven't read the book yet? Yeah, that you know, the, you know, the Great Lakes and made up a big tapestry not only of uh, biota, you know, flora and fauna, but humans, right? A whole bunch, and so some of them live in rural areas, some of them live in big uh, urban areas, some of them live in Rust Belt cities that are in going through major decline. So, um, so I wanted to draw on that broad tapestry of people too to tell um, different stories so that we can lift up and celebrate what they have been doing clearly also to identify remaining challenges mm -hmm. but to show that progress can be made and that can give hope to others working on this and they're all connected everybody's everybody's work is connected to each other's absolutely we all you know it's it you know we teach all the time, you know, ecosystem, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the difference between environment and ecosystem is like the difference between house and home. House mm -hmm. is external and detached. It sits across the street over there. But a home is something you see yourself in even when you're not there. You know, you're part of it. So we are part of our ecosystem and what we do to the ecosystem then we do to ourselves and we are all part of this ecosystem. And so, you know, long range transport of persistent toxic substances biomagnify up the food webs and, mm -hmm. and, and are in the fish. And so we are all part of that and we have to realize that. And then what was one of the catalysts for the cleanup of areas of concern is that, you know, back in the 
70s and early 80s, it was all top-down command and control management, you know, of governments telling communities and counties and stakeholders, you know, how to do it. But this called for a bottom-up collaborative approach, you know, this ecosystem approach, you know, uh, account for the interrelationships between land, mm-hmm. air, water, and all living things, including humans, and you know, involve all user groups and management. So, so this whole theme of, you know, how do people bring come together around this desired future state? This, this, you know, this vision that they want, and then co-produce knowledge co-innovate solutions and practice adaptive management. It's, it's just a great learning tool for a lot of people. But So you talk about the importance of, of bringing people together and working together, and that's been a theme for a lot of your work. But then you're focusing on, on champions here. Is, is part of what makes them champions their ability to bring different groups of people together? Absolutely. They wouldn't be a, they wouldn't be a champion if unless they could do that because that's what it takes. Just think of these problems, you know, whether it's in a big urban area, it's, you know, combined sewer overflows because we have combined storm and sanitary sewers, or we have contaminated sediment or massive loss of habitat or, 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 you know, whatever urban or agricultural runoff problems that takes collaboration. So each of these have to be very collaborative and know how to build teams and how to move a team forward, so to speak, in incremental fashion to be able to make decisions and and affect change. Are there any notable stories about the Great Lakes champions that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, there's just, absolutely. There's (laughs) there's lots of good ones. I mean, you know, uh, the husband and wife team are, are, Bud and Vicki Harris out of Green Bay, you know, and, and of course the Fox River is the big tributary that goes into Green Bay. And, you know, it had the, the highest density of pulp and paper mills in the world at one time. Can you imagine that? And then, you know, the rest of the story of recycling paper and PCBs and ink, and it led to this just massive, PCB problem that was manifested not only in health advisories, but reproductive, you know, failure of species and um, birds. And, and so uh, what a story. And, and they used science and produced actionable science to be able to make decisions. And so starting, you know, with the, the Fox River and Green Bay remedial action plan, and then the uh, Green Bay Mass Balance Study to figure out what are all the sources. In this case, let's talk about PCBs. What are all the sources of them? What's the relative contribution? And where would we get the biggest bang for our buck? And and today, here they are with spending $1.3 billion wow. on the cleanup. Not million, but billion dollars on that cleanup. And now restoring habitats and, you know, they're doing a really innovative cat island chain habitat restoration project. Um, and, and then, of course, the end of the story is reconnecting people to it as well. So that's an example of one, uh, a husband and wife team. Uh, I'll give you another one. And um, Hamilton 
Ontario is the steel capital of Canada. Megan, you know that. You should know that, right? And uh, and so Hamilton, you know, it, it had big steel companies. And for over 100 years, you know, they filled in portions of, of Hamilton Harbor, you know, all the wetlands and built out, you know, so that they could expand their steel mills. And then they had all the effluents. So they ended up with a, a massive contaminated sediment problem, the largest in all of the Canadian uh, portion of the Great Lakes. And um, um, a person who was a planner by trade worked for a local conservation authority, which is like a watershed council in the United States. So a really good background to bring people together. And um, so... Today, fast forward, they have the uh, the Randall Reef uh, contaminated sediment remediation project, the largest in all of the Canadian portion of the Great Lakes, is completed, and they remove the contaminated sediments from the harbor, put it into this uh, big containment cell, and capped it and connected it to the land, and so now the Port Authority there can expand their operations. So there's actually an economic benefit from it as well. And and then, of course, that was then a catalyst for uh, for lots of habitat rehabilitation. They went to one of the most notable places in the Canadian portion of the Great Lakes for habitat loss to being a leader in habitat rehabilitation and enhancement. And now... Um, People are rediscovering portions of Hamilton Harbor, and they're connecting to it with greenway trails and waterfront uh, developments as well. But those are two of, of the of the champions and their stories in the book. What makes a great Great Lakes champion? Well, I, I would say to you that they all are, you know, passionate about the Great Lakes, right? They all have this love love for the Great Lakes, but they're big dreamers, right? They can, and they are, they were able to bring people together to, like in the case of Bud and Vicki Harris, develop this desired future state. You're not going to go back to pristine, you know, conditions, but you can reach agreement on what you want for your ecosystem. And it's something that then all the different stakeholder groups can carry in their hearts and minds. Um, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're people who are, have an eagerness to learn and want to share it with others. They're practical problem solvers. You know, you have to be to work in this area. They're, uh, they're in it for the long haul. You know, many of them have been at this for decades. You know, they are, you know, they're impeccable for their honesty and their integrity and they're generous servant leaders. You know, they are the first one to acknowledge the importance of other stakeholders. They're all, they're very generous in giving credit and, and, and doing that. And you put all those together and that makes a champion. It really is a wonder that humans have survived this long Um, with all the, like, all the things that we've done to the environment, whether it's just putting in um, industrial pollution or our own waste into our drinking water, it just, it's a wonder that we survived this long. <laughs> it's 
And did I, you did you see any of your the champions that you interviewed like thinking about that or or is that was that ever a concern as you've been going through your career? Uh, absolutely, you know, like you know, how, how have we survived all of this? How many mistakes as a society can we make? And you know, most people, you know, like uh, you know, most people in the United States and Canada live in urban areas. 80% of all the people in the United States and Canada live in urban areas. And Oh, now, yet, hold on, hold on. John, I apologize to interrupt you, but that sounds a lot like a Great Lakes factoid. And so we have to introduce little factoids with the Great Lakes factoid okay. song. So I apologize. Um, no problem. <laughs> I, so anyway, I want to hear that 80% again, but not until after this. It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. As you were saying. Did you know that 80% of all the people in the United States and Canada live in urban areas? I mean, and most, Megan, you know this, most are disconnected from the outdoors, from nature, from water. They don't understand they're part of an ecosystem. And what we do to the ecosystem, we do to ourselves. And so uh, what we need to do is reconnect people with nature and and that is the next you know phase of this uh areas of concern experiment is we've gone through some significant cleanup and remediation and habitat restoration and the next phase is reconnecting people to water to give them those compelling experiences out uh, outdoors to see your plover right? To see your plover, to see, to catch a fish, to, to make memories for people, to do placemaking out there. So people then can, uh, you know, know that they're part of their ecosystem. And this will be helping with developing a stewardship ethic, you know, a conservation ethic for the Great Lakes. And, and hopefully, um, we won't be able to, we won't be making as many mistakes like we did in the past, you know, but with, that is absolutely critical to reconnect people to water. And then where we see that already, you know, think of where I'm from, Detroit. And we were an industrial town that supported industry and commerce. And the waterfront was all industry. And if you went to downtown Detroit at the Renaissance Center, just 20 years ago, and you looked upriver, all you would see is three sets of cement silos, dilapidated and abandoned buildings, material storage piles, you know, limestone and salt, and, and then surface parking lots. We had so limited public access to the river. So in this cleanup of the river and remediation and habitat restoration, you know, and um, people started saying, why can't we have more access? And people also then wanted, you know, other modes of transportation. We were the automobile capital of the United States. We specialized in driving places. Well, they wanted alternative modes of transportation, like greenways. And so now they fast forward. We have the Detroit Riverwalk. Um, it's the number one riverwalk in the United States, uh, three years in a row. And that reconnecting people to water is not 
just about uh, you know a good feeling. Um, that Detroit Riverwalk, they invested roughly $140 million in the first 10 years, a big rigorous economic benefits study at the end of that. And the return on that investment was a billion dollars of additional investment. So it's also part of a strategy of, you know, revitalizing Detroit. And as you said, Stuart, taking that step to the next economy. So, Here's a question I always think about when I hear about the, the economic returns. So why are we investing this money everywhere in your mind? So if it's a 10 to 1, let's assume the study is overly optimistic and it's only a, a 2 to 1. or Let's assume it's a 1 to 1. Uh, yeah. You know, why aren't we making – either way, it's a common sense investment, right? Why aren't we making those everywhere in your opinion? Uh, well, there was a great – you know, the GLRI, as you know, is a multi-billion dollar initiative, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And there was a big study done on that. For every dollar invested by the federal government in, you know, cleanup, restoration, yep. habitat, you get a $3.38 return on your investment. It is just common sense. And, 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 it, and, it, and in some cases, you know, not... It's your property values go up, but it, it attracts other things. It attracts some of the, the amenities that um, young people want in these cities and towns, too. They, want, they don't just want a job. They want a lifestyle, and they want to be connected to the water, and they want to have nice coffee shops, and they want to canoe and kayak livery over here and they want these experiences where you can go birding and where you can fish and so um it, it, it's part of a strategy um i agree Stuart. we need to be doing more of that um i think we're early on in this kind of economic benefits uh study uh, uh implementation you know um i think you're going to see more i think just look at this um Contaminated sediments. There were two places on the Riverwalk of the Detroit Riverwalk where they could not build the Riverwalk because of contaminated sediment. So then they had to get involved in contaminated sediment remediation. That's not their expertise. They, you know, they were a reluctant partner, but they did that, and then the benefits from that are amazing. On the Lower Rouge River, which is a tributary that goes into the Detroit River, that is also an area of concern. They can't build any more uh, kayak launches and landings in that section because of contaminated sediment. So we we need to be talking about this and showing the value and benefit of what we do. All right. Now, I have three questions that I've jotted down because I find myself agreeing with everything that you're saying. And so that makes me nervous for our listener because there's some listener out there who is screaming right now. And so I've jotted down three devil's advocate questions. Um, all right. And I'm going to, I'm going to dump these on you with no prep, but I think sure. you can handle Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. Here we go. So one is you talk a lot about the importance of involving the broader community in these restorations mm -hmm. process, right? Uh, first of all, is that too slow to do that? You know, that involves a lot of sort of work that isn't the work of restoration, and I think a lot of times to find out things that you, most of which you could have guessed or might have guessed just if you were doing it kind of more top down. So does that mm -hmm. add too much, um, uh, too many processes onto the restoration project, if that makes sense? 
Yes, it does. You know, we talk about it as transactional costs. The number of meetings, the you know, Zoom meetings, in-person meetings. How do you bring them together and reach agreement on this? You know, you operate by consensus. So in this kind of bottom-up collaborative ecosystem approach, uh, transactional costs are high. You know, that is clearly a challenge. So um, these Great Lakes champions have to be impatient with the process. You know, they have to want to be the, you know, not only you've got devil's advocates out there, but you want to make sure you're pushing that that process forward, you know, and um, making the decisions and, and uh, you know, your science is not perfect, but we have the precautionary principle in the absence of perfect knowledge that this is causing that, if the potential um, consequences of it are so great, you can take action. And these, these Great Lakes champions, these boundary spanners are people who are adept at moving that process forward and not allowing it to languish and, and bog down. Fantastic. All right. Devil's Avery question number two. So, all of your work, uh, well, I don't all, much of your work, how about that? And the focus of this book is on the areas of concern. Um, but those are just 43 areas that were designated, was it 1987, or the process mm-hmm. led up to the 1987 Water Quality Agreement. There are many, many, many polluted areas in the Great Lakes. And I don't know what went into designating those 43 um, and not others. But are we, do we run the risk of fo- focusing too much on these areas and ignoring other areas that may be similarly polluted but weren't included in the uh, AOC process for whatever reason? Um, it's always good to be a devil's advocate. Um, GLRI, you know, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, you know, uh, money is spent on other areas. But I think, you know, the areas of concern are really important because they're crucibles for learning, you know. And to be honest, in any one of these, and I, they'll, they would say it in Fox River in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They would say it in Milwaukee. They would say it in Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Cleveland, Ohio, on the Cuyahoga, that mistakes, some mistakes get made, you know. And, and so it's important to be able to share those things. Um, not only what you did right, but what didn't work, why didn't it work, and what's your advice for somebody else in another watershed um, that has facing similar problems uh, uh, to learn from you and to accelerate their process of cleanup and remediation and restoration. Boom. Sounds good. All right, last one. I taught middle school for a while, and I went through an alternative certification program. And, and as I was going through that, um, uh, Jamie Escalante, who is a calculus teacher, featured in a movie in the 1980s, probably called Stand and Deliver, um, who like did this heroic thing where he taught people who had no business learning calculus, given their sort of uh, social and economic situation, he taught them calculus. And he was a real hero uh, of that. But it occurred to me as I was going through this, I was in Pinellas County, Florida, in a kind of a rough um, school, that if we have to rely on Jamie Escalante's, we will never fix whatever is wrong with our education system. 
Uh, and so I worry with the Great Lakes Champion model, not that you develop this model, but, but like it's not, it's not necessarily portable. There isn't necessarily a champion in every polluted area, yeah. right? Uh, so is there a way to make this happen without champions, or is it something that you just need in order to uh, push restoration and revitalization forward? I would say to you, um, none of these 13 individuals thought they'd be a champion when they started down this road, you know, and, um, but um, we need to be teaching. So if you take Sea Grant, if you take universities, if you take government agencies, whether it's federal, state, provincial, um, we need to be having people in these organizations that are, that can, are collaborative. They know facilitation, how to move a group forward. It's something that is not part of most, you know, university curricula. You know what I mean? And we need to teach that. We need to teach about how to become a boundary spanner, how to work in a uh, boundary organization network. I think that's really important. So that I think um, uh, some of these, you know, like Vicki Harris came from Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. So she was in that and affiliated also with Sea Grant in Wisconsin. And so that's that's a good example right there. Um, but we need to develop these expertise in lots of different places. So in terms of next steps for the ecosystem approach, we need to re-energize it and that we need to be able to teach this within different organizations like conservation authorities in Ontario, watershed councils, sea grants, and, and uh, in other places as well. So John, what gives you hope for the future of the Great Lakes? I am really excited about this reconnecting people to water. You know, I'm not, that's not my background, you know, so I'm, I'm, I, I get to be a novice, right? I get to, but uh, to be really low on the learning curve. But what we have looked at, you know, I've been on the uh, board of directors of the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy from its onset 20 years ago. And, uh, and I'm now working with the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan to say, we've got these amazing water resources that go from Southern Lake Huron at Port Huron. The St. Clair River is a uh, area of concern. It has then Lake St. Clair, it has the Clinton River coming into it. That's an area of concern. The Detroit River is one, the Rouge River, the River Raisin, the, uh, the Maumee River, those are all areas of concern. So. What we're doing is we have a big vision for something called the Great Lakes Way. It's an interconnected set of greenways and water trails stretching from Southern Lake Huron through Western Lake Erie um, that is going to not tell people how to do things, but to collaborate and say, we want to lift up and amplify what you're doing. And if you have a gap, how do we come together and use some of this infrastructure money and other monies and state funds to fill in these gaps and realize the benefits? The more economic benefit studies you read about this, the more compelling it becomes. And so right now, 
everyone is on board. All the communities, all the counties, businesses are coming on board. So it's a very exciting time to create this and and then connect it to Canada. Um, you, you may know, Megan, you may know that we have this bridge under construction, this brand new bridge in Detroit called the Gordie Howe International Bridge. And Gordie Howe uh, International Bridge. How Canadian so, is that? All right. How how Canadian. And it's but it but <laughs> obviously anyone from Detroit loves Gordie Howe and will love that name. So anyways, we they invited us to be on some focus groups and we came in, weren't satisfied. So we we stayed on the focus group, but we put together a binational group of people and said we want to advocate for um, connections between Detroit and Windsor uh, by bicycle. So we want uh, improvements to the tunnel bus system that goes onto the Detroit River with the bike rack so you can get across and enjoy either side. We want a dedicated bicycle and pedestrian lane on the new Gordie Howe Bridge. We've won both of those. How exciting is that? So You'll be on the Detroit Riverwalk. You'll be able to enjoy this new Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park, an $80 million park under construction. Go over the Gordie Howe Bridge and experience Ojibwe National Urban Park. They're creating um, a whole series of national urban parks to connect people with nature. And um, the first one was Rouge National Urban Park in Toronto. That was so successful. Now they're, they think the next one hopefully will be Ojibwe National Urban Park in Windsor. And you'll be able to do all of that by bicycle and, and you know, have conservation experiences, have outdoor recreational experiences, experience the Underground Railroad, experience First Nations history all by bicycle. And that is something that will lead us to this, this love of the river and the outdoors and be a stepping stone towards a conservation ethic, we hope. This makes me so happy. It's like, so a lot of the, a lot of the people that you talk to, like they grew up in nature, but it sounds like our next generation that isn't necessarily growing up in nature, they're going to literally run into or bike into these natural spaces. And it just, it makes me so happy. Bike and kayak. I mean, it is, it is amazing. And, and, you know, it just, it's, it's fun to watch and it's just uh, exciting to be part of it. Well, John, this is really interesting. You have a wealth of experience to share and, and we could, uh, you know, about AOCs and Great Lakes champions and the way that things are moving um, and, and where we're headed. And I think it's a very hopeful message, which is nice to hear because we don't always hear hopeful messages, um, especially environmental ones um, lately. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Well, that would be easy for me. I'm, I'm a big lover of bread, and I would love to go to a deli or something like that and have a good rye bread and amazing sandwich. So I think that would, that's something that I seek out when I go out. Fantastic. And so you're up in Windsor now. Follow-up question. I did more on this one. You're up in Windsor. Next year, Iagler is going to be in Windsor. Um, and so I'm going to go to my sessions or whatever. I will give my talk, assuming every talk I give, and then I will be hungry for a sandwich. Where should I go in Windsor to get a really great sandwich? Well, you can go to uh, um, a place called Bubby's, which is in sort of walking distance from where 
the uh, the conference will be held at the casino. You can go to um, uh, a number of different. The Green Bean is a great coffee shop with sad, uh, sandwiches, which is on uh, on Wyandotte on the edge of the university. So there, uh, yeah, there's two, and then of course you can experience uh, um, Italian Town and go down uh, Erie Street, and they've got 50 restaurants, and you, you can not, you could have a great sandwich or you could have a great Italian dinner there. I know our Hope and I are going to eat next conference. My kids came with me to uh, Iagler in Toronto, and so we enjoy going out. I don't think they're coming to Windsor, but if regardless, I'm, we're going to tour all of those. That'll be done. Yes. What is a special place in the... Sorry, I was writing down that I need to tell Hope that we need oh, sorry. to go and yep, find no, all these good. places. Um, uh, but what is what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? And what makes it special? That, plis, that list could be pretty long, I think. You know, there's lots of special places that I would like to go. But I guess the one I... Is, is is now where I live. You know, I live in metropolitan Detroit. I live off the lower end of the Detroit River. There's a big island, the largest island in the Detroit River. By the way, the Detroit River has 20, about 23 islands, depending on which ones you count. The biggest one is Gros Isle. And it, it's connected by a couple of bridges and it's got lots of open space and great greenway trails and everything else in there. On Grosia, there's a, a little, some little small islands. On the very southern end of Grosia, they have um, a small um, little island called Hickory Island. And um, it has all these mature trees on it. And so you can imagine if you put a small island, even with people in it, in the middle of the Detroit River, which is the intersection of the Atlantic and Mississippi flyways. And 350 species of birds have been identified in the area. You are living in, you know, stopover habitat. So you've got all these, you know, birds, the warblers in the spring. You've got bald eagles around and you've got a, we've got a, a nearby blue heron rookery. And of course, in the fall, you've got the fall raptor migration and there's 23 species of birds that cross the river and over this island and you can see kettles of hawks circling up ahead and then they glide down and then rise up on another rising column of warm air a thermal and that's how they hop across the river because they don't want to go over to western lake erie the open waters and so uh i live on that island right now in a small little place on this island and i can experience the outdoors not just daily but almost hourly and we get to see things and we see mink running around and we've got beaver that'll cut down a tree periodically and and it's really neat to be part of that yet be in this major metropolitan area with over four million people so i feel very fortunate and blessed to 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 live in the on on this hickory island what a resource. That's amazing. Well, Dr. John Hardig, visiting scholar at the Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research at the University of Windsor and the author of Great Lakes Champions, Grassroots Efforts to Clean Up Polluted Watersheds. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you both. This is really special, really a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, yeah. We loved it. Thank you. 
think that might have been a Hall of Famer. What a, uh, I mean, the book is really fun, and boy, it's I could listen to him talk Great Lakes forever. I know. Um, I just I had so many questions, but I will ask him when we go eat together. There we go. That's the thing. Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, I do want to point out, because I know people are wondering, so he did talk about um, all the wonderful birds near his house, and that sounds really cool. We are, of course, working under Foley's assumption with this one, so I just wanted to let people know that. Foley's assumption that birds are real? That is exactly Foley's assumption. Yes. Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm on the same. <laughs> well, you see, no, that's better. I like to leave that hanging so that the one person who might remember that out of our <laughs> listenership, out of, you know, the one out of however many thousand or whatever. Yeah. But no, no, no. I, uh, <laughs> yes, that is Foley's assumption. The birds are real. Sweet. Uh, and so we are operating under that assumption. But it's just like an it. assumption. It's just an assumption. <laughs> All right, do it. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the cool stuff we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Megan Gunn, and Reenie Miles. Carolyn Foley is our senior producer. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer, and he's our fixer. If it's broke, he's going to fix it. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by me. While we find someone to replace the irreplaceable coin rolls. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG which is 4474 for those of you that don't remember T9. Um, you can also follow the show on Twitter T9. at Teach Great Lakes. <laughs> but online in the Great Lakes, nobody over here is feeling much like a champion these days. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. Cool. Well, thank you, Megan. Thank you. Can I, can you stop recording and then I'll tell you an honest, (laughs) when you stop recording, I will tell you an honest statement so that you can't include it in the bloopers. Okay. Sounds good.